week, we are going to jump into one of the most amazing sections of Scripture in the whole Bible, which I say all the time, and I always mean it. Uh, But this one truly is an amazing uh, piece of Scripture because we have Jesus himself preaching. If you have a red-letter Bible, you will notice that most of this entire section is the words of Jesus. And so we're going to listen to him give a sermon to his disciples, but with crowds of people gathered all around, kind of just listening in. And that's an interesting thing that we don't talk about with this section, is the sermon that he is preaching was to his followers, to his disciples, but there are crowds surrounding all around, listening in on his words. We know this section of scripture as the Sermon on the Mount. Although it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not really a mount. Especially if you are somebody who lives in Montana and you are used to the Rocky Mountains. Let me show you a picture of the area that they think was the mount. Do we have that? So as you can see, it's a rolling hill. If indeed this is where it was, this is on the plateau of Chorazim where they think that this sermon took place. It's not exactly a mountain, but it's a beautiful hill that oversees the Sea of Galilee. And this is where they think this took place. And so I think an actual better name for this sermon would be something like the Sermon on the Kingdom of God. Because that's what it's actually about. And that would be more accurate as to uh, what the whole thing is about. And so in short, this is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached by the greatest man who has ever lived, who also happens to be God in the flesh. And so I think knowing that, we should probably pay a pretty good bit of attention to his words. I want to take this section a little bit differently than we normally do. Uh, Normally I read a big chunk of scripture and then we kind of go back and talk about it. I want to take this one just Almost verse by verse, there'll be a couple times where I read two at a time. But stick with me as we go through this. And I want to say before we jump into this too, I think a lot of times we read this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, and it almost reads like it's just random. Like it's a little, a little nugget of knowledge and then move on to the next little nugget of knowledge and wisdom. But it's not. It's actually a flowing sermon. Jesus is has a starting point, and he comes, and each point jumps off of the next one, and they go together. So if you have a Bible or device, we're going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, just to start, just to set this up. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, or the rolling hill, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so Jesus sits down for this sermon. This is interesting because most of you, if you go to church, the pastor, whatever, they, they stand up and they, and they speak. But, but Jesus sits down, maybe on the hill, maybe on a rock, I don't know. He sits down and he, it's a dis- demonstration of authority. Because when Jesus teaches, he doesn't need to stand up and convince you that you should listen to him. He's Jesus. So he sits down. And I imagine that a hush. 
falls over the crowd. And he speaks with authority. And you, you can hear this, like they talk about in academics, somebody has a chair over the department. Right? That is their chair, which, which they speak from authority, from that chair. Or you maybe picture a king speaking, right? Kings don't stand up from their throne. They preach from their throne. They, they teach. They give direction from their throne because they have all of the authority. If you were raised Catholic like I was, you may have heard the term ex-cathedra. That means if the Pope says something from the throne, from the chair, the cathedra, then that is the word of God to them. So this is a demonstration. He sits down and he just says, okay, let's talk about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Like I said before, he's teaching his disciples. He's almost giving, I know this is a weird term, but it's it's almost a manifesto of the kingdom of God that he's giving them. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? He's teaching his followers what it means to live a kingdom lifestyle. Now, a a modern church strategist probably would have said, what are you doing, Jesus? There's all these unsaved people. You need to give an evangelical call. But Jesus doesn't do that. He begins to teach, what does it mean to live a deep life in the kingdom of God? Because Jesus understands what a lot of times modern church strategists don't, that we don't need to manipulate. We just need to give people the word of God. I also think Jesus does this because over and over it seems that Jesus sends others out to give testimony to who he is. He doesn't have to talk about himself because there are people all around him saying, have you seen what Jesus can do? Have you seen the way that he has changed my life? And so there are these followers around him giving testimony. And so he sends all of them out. He teaches the word of God. And then he sends them out to give testimony to to who he is. To share with others. And verse 3 is going to begin a section that we know as the Beatitudes. Beatitude comes from the Latin term beatus, which literally means happy or blessed. Coming up are eight sayings of God, and they they aren't feelings, they are proclamations of God, they are statements from Jesus that if you live like this, if you are this, then you will receive this blessing. And they often seem paradoxical to us because they make no human sense, because our minds don't have a full understanding of what actual joy is, because we are so caught up in ourselves We don't really understand what happiness, the blessing of God is because we are limited. And so he begins to give these beatitudes. And like I said, it's not a random list. I hope it's one of the things I hope to take you through today is that this is not random. He has a a plan that he's going through. So you kids, fourth, fifth graders, Matthew 5 is what we're talking about. Main point, the beatitudes and how... They are a part of how we live in the kingdom of God. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
we will be blessed if we come humbly to God. That's what poor in spirit means. It's an odd saying to us. But it means coming to God in humility. Not coming to God saying, God, look what I can offer you. Because we cannot offer him anything. We come to him saying, I am broken, I am sinful, I have nothing to offer you, Lord. It says poor, and the Greek word poor is tokos. And tokos means threadbare, poverty-stricken, destitute, bankrupt. The idea from the Old Testament would be, would be to have your head covered because you don't want anybody to see you in the midst of your, pro- in your poverty, but to have your hand out asking for people to bless you. Tokos, poor in spirit, coming to God saying, I have nothing, I am broken, but God, I need you. We see this in another part of the scriptures when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He has all the wealth, he has everything. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? But I believe this man comes to Jesus in his pride and in his strength saying, I have all these things. What do I need to do to get in? And Jesus understands what's going on. He's coming to Jesus in his pride. And so Jesus, knowing that, says, you lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and come and follow me. Give everything to the poor. And it says that the rich young man went away sad because he had great financial blessings. It wasn't about telling him, you need to be poor. It was about this man coming and saying, this is what I have to offer you, Jesus. And Jesus saying, you don't understand what it means to be poor in spirit. We don't come to Jesus in our own strength. If we try to do that, we don't understand the need that we have. Great author Max Lucado said this about the first beatitude. You don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. Mark it down. God does not save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with tithes. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidder, and only a great God does for his children what they cannot do for themselves. That's the message of the first beatitude. He's he's dead on. We cannot come to God rich in our own spirit, saying, look what I can do for you. But we come to him poor and saying, God, I, I have nothing. And you're offering me everything. Second beatitude builds on this. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is not just a general term for mourning, for going through a difficult time, for being sad. This is the idea that because we are poor, because we are bankrupt, because we are threadbare before God, we mourn the sin of that takes place in us. We mourn the brokenness that has separated us from God. Notice it says mourn. It doesn't say whine. It doesn't say moan. 
It says we mourn. There's a difference. And because we are broken before God, we, like the man with his head covered, says, God, I, I have nothing. I'm in mourning, but God, you bless me. We just talked about this recently, but this is the story, like Luke 18, when the Pharisee is in the temple, and he's praying, and he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. The Pharisee's not mourning his own sin. He's comparing himself to the tax collector, but the tax collector is praying, God, I am worthless. I have nothing. Thank you, God, for just having mercy on me. And somehow in that story, the tax collector is the one that goes away righteous. Because he's not coming in his own strength, he's mourning in his need. Our need for the grace and mercy of God. Listen, our need for the grace and mercy of God is not a competition. You don't go to church. I pray you don't come to this church and sit there thinking, at least I'm not as bad as Nick. Or whoever it is that you might look across the aisle and say, I'm better than them. That's not mourning. And that's not coming to God poor in spirit. That's coming saying, oh, I have something to offer, and yet we don't. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves to give to God. And so we come, we come poor in spirit. We come mourning our own sin. And then the third, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek, you probably know, means to have power that is harnessed. Like a horse that is harnessed. It does not to mean to be spineless. It does not mean that we get walked all over in every position. It does not mean that you are weak. It means you are meek. You have power, but you harness that power. It's not uncontrolled. Uncontrolled power does nothing. You could have a car with a thousand horsepower, but if you don't have tires that stick to the ground, it does not matter. We have to have control of the power. And if you come to the Lord in humility, understanding your need for grace and mercy, and if you mourn for the sin that has separated you from God, then you're also going to understand that God wants you to use whatever power, whatever gifts, whatever talents you have in meekness to harness those things and to use them for the kingdom of God because it is our inheritance. The fourth beatitude, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we come humbly before God, mourning our sin, using whatever power we have meekly, for the kingdom of God, then hopefully that leads us to hungering and thirsting to see the kingdom of God to come into fruition more and more in this world. We want to see the righteousness of God changing the world around us. What is your passion? What is your drive? What is your why? For why you get up in the morning and do what you do and love your family and work at your job like what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning is it the kingdom of god do you have a hunger 
in a thirst to see the kingdom of God built? Or are we just trying to build our own kingdom? And notice it says hunger and thirst. It doesn't say those will be blessed if they want a little side snack of the righteousness of God. It's not just a side. It is a hunger. It is a a deep desire to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. And if you have that, you can be satisfied in the Lord when you see him doing his work in this world. The fifth beatitude, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Going along with that meekness, going along with the hunger and thirst, we, we live in a world that is merciless in so many ways. It just feels like everything is just pounding, right? And God says we are called to be a people of mercy. When you live your life with a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, then that should be accompanied by a desire to receive the mercy of God and to bless others with the mercy of God. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is an interesting one because pure in heart, biblically, we've talked about this before too, the heart and the mind are the same thing biblically. You go back to the Hebrews, we've talked about it, or into Greek culture. Anybody remember my, my favorite Greek word? Splognitiomai, yes. My favorite Greek word. Because that's where you feel, that's where you think. Biblically, that's where the seat of all of your emotions are. They're from your bowels, your splagnon. And so your feelings, your splagnitiomai, come from there. And so it says, blessed are the pure in heart. But we see other places in the scripture, like Proverbs 13, it, it says the same idea. As a man thinks... In his heart, so is he. So again, this idea of the heart and the mind and the feelings, they all go together. But then in other places, we see Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is desperately wicked. One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy as a pastor is when I hear somebody say, I'm just following my heart. That is the worst advice you could give yourself. Because our hearts, our minds are broken. They're desperately wicked. More divorces have taken place in America in the last couple generations because somebody says, the heart wants what the heart wants. The heart's desperately wicked. In and of ourselves, we have no good thoughts. We have no grace and mercy. So please, don't ever fall for this garbage. When somebody, especially if you have a friend who says to you, like, you, have, you just have to follow your heart. There should be a big red flag that flies over your head when you hear somebody say that because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Proverbs 28 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. So what's this scripture talking about? If we can't trust our heart, our splagnon, we can't trust in that, but 
God wants us to be pure in heart, then, then what does this mean? Well, pure in this term, it's catharos, or we get the word catharsis. It is an inward purity before God, an unmixed sincerity before people. And the whole idea here is if you are walking along this process of following the Beatitudes, of coming to God pure in spirit and, and acting in meekness and thirsting for the righteousness of God, if you are going down this path, then hopefully we get a, to a point where our mind and our hearts are turning more and more pure towards the things of God. But we still don't trust in our own. We measure them by the purity of God. And if they don't line up with that, we are in error. So it says, blessed is he who is pure in heart. The seventh, building more upon that, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Right, The image is you, you're building a bridge between two parties that are separated. And this beatitude is all about being on mission. We are called to be peacemakers between those who are separated from God and their Father. All of this that we're building in these beatitudes is building towards, as followers of Jesus, he sends us out into the world to be peacemakers between him and those who are at war with him. This is one of the primary messages of the entire gospel. As we've been going through the gospel for 23 weeks now, which is funny because I thought, like, oh, this could take a whole year. It's going to take a lot longer than that. <clears throat> We're 23 weeks in, and I'm like, not even close. Okay. But one of the primary messages is that we are sent out to be peacemakers in this world. Jesus reiterates his calls for the disciples to go out and to make disciples of all nations. And when we do this, we can be called sons of God, not because that's what saves us. It's not. What saves us is our relationship. But when you go out and you're doing the work that God has called you to do in the kingdom, then he is inviting you into the family business. And you are called sons of God. The last beatitude, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you start to live all of these beatitudes, when we start to look more and more like these red letters of Jesus, you will be persecuted by the world around you. It's not if, it's you will. Persecution is the inevitable clash between two irreconcilable value systems. 
If you're living these words, then your value system is going to clash with the world around you. It is an absolute fact. These two worlds cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. The sin-filled, broken world is set against the ways of God, and God is calling his people to something that is far greater than the kingdom that this world has to offer. And so the persecution is the outflow of having a kingdom mindset. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now for us in America, at least now, that's a very small thing. Someone didn't say Merry Christmas at Starbucks. Oh no, persecution. There are people being murdered all over the world just for uttering the name of Jesus. We have it real easy here. But there could come a time. Persecution is a very real thing in this world. And it comes when we are focused on the kingdom of God. And then it says this crazy thing. It says, rejoice and be glad in that. Really? Really, God? You want me to rejoice? Like, they're persecuting me. Yay! God says, you're in good company. Look at everyone who's been persecuted for faith. The prophets. The disciples. Jesus. They've come before and been persecuted. For our reward is great in heaven when we rejoin rejoin with those people. The Beatitudes are just the beginning of this amazing sermon on the not-so-mount. The Beatitudes are the beginning of this message that Jesus speaks over his disciples with crowds listening in, hearing every word. How amazing is it? Do you ever just think about that, that we have the words directly of Jesus in the Bible? If you're anything like me, there's been many times in your life you say, man, I just wish God would tell me what to do. Right? As if he didn't. As if he hasn't given us explicit directions of what it means to follow him and to be in this kingdom. And yet, we have his words, we have his plan of what it means to live a life that's kingdom-minded, that brings honor and glory to him. And just in this one section, we have all these beatitudes. And then later, next week, in the next couple weeks, we'll talk about Jesus gives direct teaching on things like anger and lust and divorce and revenge and generosity and prayer and so on and so on. The Lord truly gave us his word. And so often we say, God, just tell me what to do. And he says, I did. I did. I didn't mean to make God sound so whiny. I did. No, I did. The Lord truly gave us his word. We have the words of Jesus. And so the question for us is, are they important enough for us to actually read them? We have the words of Jesus. We walk around saying, I wish God would tell me what to do. And he says, I did. Is it important enough for us to actually read them, to study them, 
to commit them to memory, and to most importantly, to put them into action. To become the kind of person that the Beatitudes describes, somebody who is a part of the kingdom of God and desires to live their life as a kingdom of God builder. To be someone that's coming alongside God and saying, God, I, I have nothing to offer you. But your grace and mercy is, is incredible. And so God, take whatever, whatever you have given me, take whatever it is and use it for your kingdom. Let's pray.